when you are so confident in yourself, in who you are, you know yourself well enough to know boundaries, to know what is right and wrong, how to approach people, what love feels like to you, what it should feel like to others. Then you become the strongest person in the room. You be, it doesn't matter where you are in the organization. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of business leadership, culture, engagement, and practical love, the kind of love that helps humans to flourish and businesses to thrive. Please share this episode with a friend so we can continue to spread the Love in Action message globally. Hey, we're at 160 countries. We'd love to be in more countries. Okay, so if you're a regular listener, to the show, you already know that one of the big ideas here is is for us to spotlight the importance of human connections in the workplace. I mean, we need it. We need to feel connected because, well, the research states that it leads to happy and engaged employees and it, it boosts your work satisfaction. So as leaders, we got to get to that visceral understanding you know, deep down inside us that you know, to have a high-performing and profitable organization, you have to take care of the people who work in it. It's a simple idea that when put into practice will give you unprecedented results. And now that we're in this, you know, whatever you want to call it, great reset, great resignation, where workplaces are are being redefined in, you know, I mean, as far as oh, we're really in an employee-driven economy right now. So leaders are in a great position now to build on the impact of love in the workplace. And okay, so if you're a skeptic about love at work, again, I point you right back to the research. Love, care, and compassion leads to better teamwork, better engagement, and better employee well-being. And you know, that's really good for business last time I checked. But don't let me convince you. I've brought countless experts here to to tell you about love as a competitive advantage. And today we get to add two more experts to that list. Today I'm speaking to Zena Such and Patrick Malone, co-authors of Leading with Love and Laughter, Letting Go and Getting Real at Work. Love that title. And Zena and Patrick are gonna share how people lead best when they kind of tap into that genetically driven human nature that's all inside all of us to love and nurture connect and trust they're going to address not only in their book but hopefully today if we have the time what research has uncovered about the links between positive emotions in the workplace and employee wellness and engagement you know how you can move from maybe just a sterile perhaps even dysfunctional or I should say transactional, you know, just kind of that normal exchange that we have that's very transactional to more of a caring, loving way of relating to one another in the organization and how to help teams come together and love one another and also to have fun. So let me tell you a little bit about Zena and Patrick. Zena Such has been leading development and diversity programs for the federal government for 20 years and currently serves in the senior executive service. Patrick Malone spent 23 years in the Navy and served as an officer in the Medical Service Corps. And Zena is a faculty member and Patrick is director of the key executive leadership program at American University. Yeah, easy for me to say. So now they join us and they are laughing at me because we're staring at each other through our screens now. Guys, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're very excited about this show. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, It's right on. I mean, you know, very rare to have these books that come across my desk that really, I mean, well, obviously it has the love, the the word love in the title and it just slaps me upside the head um, because we're all about talking about love uh, in the workplace. And here you are. So we're all aligned. So 
before we get into your journey and, you know, the book, we have this tradition on the show, how we start now. And, and that's for our guests to kind of share a little bit about their story. So here's a question. What's your story? Who wants to start? <laughs> What's your story? I'm uh, dying to hear it. <laughs> you know my story. We've worked too long together for you not to know my story. That's true. Um, it, I'm a daughter of immigrants who came to the Americas, um, you know, but while they were in their early 20s, had me, um, was raised up in New England, really fell in love with understanding what and how the brain works and why we do what we do, why we think what we think, why we act the way we do, and, and started to follow that, that research path Um went through school and started working for the public service because I believe in public service. So that's kind of my story. Um, I'll let Patrick tell you a little bit about his and then, and then we can tell you how we found each other, I guess is the right (laughs) way to put it. (laughs) I love the segue. I don't even have to worry about what's next. Okay. (laughs) It's perfect. I told you there'd be no dead air. So here's the thing. So I I grew up in Texas. I grew up in Austin, Texas, the son of a, uh, of a garbage truck driver and a factory worker. And and uh, went to college there and then joined the Navy uh, as a healthcare administrator early in my career, spent 23 years there. And as part of that journey, ended up going back for my PhD at American University. And when I retired from the Navy, I was on the medical school faculty in Bethesda. And they said, well, why don't you just come here full time? I ended up at American uh, directing the key executive leadership program. And that's how we met. Yeah, I went to his key executive leadership program, and he was my faculty, my professor. Uh, the first class <laughs> I ever taught there, and she was in the room. <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite exciting. Yeah. So, how was that first class, Ina? <laughs> so good. It was good. It was great. It was I think, terrible. It was my worst teaching ever. No, but I think that you know that's where I really started to um, hone in on what good leadership was. Yeah. And I was already in serving in the public service. I was uh, you know rising up the ranks. Um, I had already gotten my PhD, and my PhD was actually in education. I was a teacher, so yeah. I was fascinated by this program. And one of the key principles of this program was building cohorts, right? And so. It was more than just sitting in a classroom. You actually were being taught how to connect with other human beings. And without them ever saying the words love or without them saying, oh, we're going to have fun in this class, they just built that environment. And so Patrick and I started talking one day and... um, well, I asked her to come teach for the program and she said, no. And I'm like, what? It's true. That's that. She said, no, I, it broke my heart. I did. I said, no, at first. And then I thought about it and I said, you know, I should go back. But I went back, I started teaching for them. And then Patrick and I were talking and this kind of segues into how the book was born. Yes. Um, we started talking about what we were seeing in the classroom. And hmm. so imagine we have, you know, top level executives coming from all federal agencies and um, and nonprofits and other organizations. And we noticed that there were some people that they just had something about them that we thought, wow, that's a good leader. You know, people want to work for that person. People want to follow that person. And so we kept saying, what is that thing? And I was calling it the X factor. I thought it must have been from that TV show. And I said, we've got to identify what is that X factor and then after, um, and, you know, Patrick and I would meet and have some wine and, and happy hours. And in those meetings, I said, you know, I think it has to do with love. These people exude love. They, they show complete care for each other. You can see they care about their employees when they talk about what they're doing with their teams, how they interact. And, and we kept saying, well, there's more to it. There's more to it. And one time Patrick was saying, well, what is it, Zena? You're in there. You're with those teams. What is it that makes you think that, you know, that you're a good leader? What makes you think that people want to follow you? And I said, I look for people having fun at work, laughing. If I see people in a staff meeting cracking up with each other, telling stories about, you know, some, you know, almost fatal skiing accident and what they looked like as they were tumbling down the hill and skis overhead, skis overhead, and everyone's laughing and they're sharing personal stories of failure and cracking up over it, not, you know, panicked about it. I was like, that's a good team. You know, that's a good leader. That's somebody who's created that space. And I said, you know, so why hasn't anybody written a book about this? And Patrick was like, Let's write a book. I remember where I was standing in the kitchen when we had that conversation. And in fact, it was and when you think about it, 
you you almost have to have love in the workplace for laughter to occur mm-hmm. because yeah. laughter is really risky. And and so so our idea was there was something that that other factor besides maybe the Y factor, but it was like okay, so what else was there? And it just seemed like a natural connection. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I I love it that you already brought laughter because you know the book is two part love and laughter. We'll get into laughter in a bit, but let's let's unpack the love part first. Okay. So every time I bring someone like 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 you guys to to talk about love in the workplace, I'm I'm reminded that as we grow our audience globally and you know reach faraway places with different cultures and and traditions, people are hearing this for the first time. And and it may, it may come across as a shock. Uh so let's get into sort of like a, a working definition by 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 telling our listeners what what do you what do you exactly mean by love at work? Well, it can be really risky whenever we started doing the research on this because when you type in love at work in Google, <laughs> you don't really get what you're thinking you're going to look for. It's it's always about unwanted office romance and and all these things and and so so I, I think the perspective that we had on love was that it was a mutual admiration and respect and care. For one human being to another, would that be the right way to describe it? Right, and and the thing that I think people don't understand, or maybe don't know, or maybe some do know, but there's of course there's different types of love. You know, you love your children differently than you love your spouse, or you love your friends in a different way than you love your sisters and brothers, maybe. You know, and so what we were saying is, let's open up our eyes and our feelings to the different types of love that you can have in your own space, in your own life. And then take a look at the people you work with. And if you're not exuding that and you're not feeling that, you're not connecting with them. Mm. You are putting their best interest ahead of everything else. And that's really what a good leader does. You know, yeah. they care for that human person that's in front of them. And we, yeah. and we challenge the readers in the book to, to think about what love means to them. I mean, the one thing we did not want to do was to say, hey, everyone, Here's the answer, because we don't really know what the answer is. We think that the answer lies within. And so the idea is, well, think about what love means to you when you think about love. And when we do talks and so forth, we'll ask people, what, how do you define it? What do you think about it? What do you think about when you feel loved and and what's going on in that dynamic? And so that was kind of the way that we, we ended up tackling the topic and, and, and kind of limited it from the stuff that we saw initially on Google. (laughs) Wow, this could go in so many so many different directions. But let, let me stick with why leaders and managers aren't exhibiting uh, or even avoiding the topic of, of of love when you look at their own leadership. Is it is it is it just ignorance or is it a fear of uh, what might happen if I, all of a sudden I'm just speaking openly about hey, let's love each other? What, what's really going on? Yeah, I, I think that um, there are probably a multitude of reasons why people who are in high level positions don't use the word um, and and try to maybe hide their emotions, hide mm. the connections. Some of those are legitimate, you know, showing favoritism to some people can can end up in you know cases and, and grievances, et cetera. But the I think the biggest issue is that that's not something we have seen from our former leaders. We rise up under other leaders. So historically, when we say who's you know the the leader in charge, it ends up being you know that you know high and mighty stoic person that's you know basically without emotions, giving directives. The C suite executive. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> right, the right. untouchables, right? And and people also have this uh, false idea that having emotions in the workplace, feeling loved and and exuding that love for other people is a weakness. It shows not a sign of strength, but weakness. When what we read, what the exact opposite is true. When you are so confident in yourself, in who you are, you know yourself well enough to know boundaries, to know what is right and wrong, how to approach people, what love feels like to you, what it should feel like to others then you become the strongest person in the room. You be, it doesn't matter where you are in the organization. People will be drawn to you. People will want to follow you. People will jump on board your vision. They yeah. will want to give you discretionary energy and time. Um, but I think leaders are afraid of that. They're afraid to yeah. show that side of them. 
And the fear could be just something as simple as no one's going to take me seriously. They won't see me as the authority in the room. I, I won't be seen as the all knowing person having all the answers. And a lot of us, you know, when we first go into those positions, we, that's what we tend to think we need to do. I wonder too, if it, if it has something to do with kind of the way we're defining leadership too, because I think sometimes leaders define themselves as, as a particular title, right. Or as a particular area of expertise and therefore they are a leader. And really that has nothing to do with leading. In fact, even supervising people has nothing to do with leading. Yeah. And, and there's a wonderful quote by an old Georgia Senator that, that said, if you think you're a leader and you look over your shoulder and nobody's following you, you're just taking a walk. That's right. a great quote. And I think that there's a lot of folks out there in positions of leadership that think they're leading, but they're really just taking a walk because no one's following them. Yes, they can direct people. Absolutely. They can tell people what to do. They can set direction. They can sign checks. But are they really leading? And this yeah. happens at all levels of the organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm going to go back to fear and maybe even, I don't know, I'm going to throw out a word that you don't hear often in a business setting, but shame. Because we're, we, you know, we might have some shame around, okay, what will what, what people think if I start to, uh, you know, show a little love around here and maybe care for people, right? And again, it, it may be that you're going against the grain of a toxic environment, a top-down autocratic environment that, I mean, if that happened and, uh, and, and you know, the, the controlling forces above you see it and, and push back against you, I mean, that... It may could be a matter of job survival for some leaders. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it, it could be, but I think our contention would be that if if I'm a mid-level manager or I'm, I'm working for in an organization where the senior leaders are toxic, if if I am able to exude love and create loving, trusting environments within the my span of control, one thing we know from the research that the the individuals in that span of control are going to be more productive, they're going to be healthier, there's going to be less turnover. So we're going to get noticed because of the amazing work we do. We're going to get noticed because we seem to be having fun doing what we're doing. We're going to get noticed because now people are more innovative and they're more curious and they feel safe to answer, to ask those questions. So if there's a little bit of, oh, look at, you know, Patrick and Zena run their show like that. Oh, but you know what? Wait, their division is doing really well. What What's going on <laughs> yeah. down there? Yeah. And those numbers and that data will speak for itself. Yeah. And it's going to influence those around you as well to kind of investigate, hmm, what's Bob doing over there in accounting that all of a sudden his employee engagement scores are like 98%, right? Yeah, I want uh, to be part of that. Yeah, exactly. Or sales numbers going up. Right. I mean, yeah. You know, when you think about that, it all has to do with that human, that human being and having that touch, that, that uh, connection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You touched um, um, on the research. So can we drill down a little bit, maybe pull up, pull something out of your hat about what you found? What is science saying on this topic of love at work? Well, there was a there was a, a piece that came out just last year. It was research done by Microsoft. And what they found was that the single most important factor for organizational accomplishment, and I tell you, this is this is so amazing to even say it out loud, the single most important factor for organizational success and mission accomplishment in an organization is not technology. It's not financial management. It's not strategic planning. It is psychological safety. First and foremost, mm. no debate. And the research has shown this over and over since the 30s. The research has been showing this. There was one study done in the UK recently where they were asking uh, individuals in the workforce if they felt loved. 65% of them said they felt a lack of love. 96% said they would work harder if they sensed that there was love in the workplace. And almost all of them said that their leaders and managers needed more training and love in the workplace. They were like, yeah, we need to educate these people about what this really means. Because when you look at, at, at things like the federal employee viewpoint scores and, and various measures that are out and around about the workforce in the United States, People are not asking for more technical skill. They don't want their leaders to be smart. Oh, the leaders are already smart and they're already smart. So that's already equal. What they're looking for is some sense of connection, some sense of belonging. And, and, and the great resignation is a great example of this. I mean, when you look at what workers are saying that they want to come back, they're demanding transparency and care and kindness. And that's, that's all begins with love. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Thanks for informing us on the science of it. Okay. Cause we, you know, that to me, that's what informs my work in servant leadership, which is all about love and action. So let's now talk about a more of an anecdotal uh, evidence, a story. We love, we love stories on the show guys. So 
What's a good story, a, a good example of you know, a high profile leader who loves well at work? Let's learn from that example. Yeah. So I, I think the one that we would love to share is a, a grocery chain um, organization that had a grocery chain up in the New England area. And his name was Arthur Demoulis. He was on the board of this um, this uh, market, I mm-hmm. guess. And um, his family were all members as well. And Arthur was a kind of leader where he would go to every one of those grocery stores and he knew people. He knew the the person that was bagging. He knew who they were related to. He knew people's birthdays. To him, he when he went to the grocery store, he wasn't looking to see are all of the things in the right place and are all the prices the right prices and are all the cashiers, you know, uh, doing things, the, the following procedures. He was he was going there to say hello, good morning, good afternoon, have a good night to all of the people that work there. People that knew he knew them, they knew him. Um, he was such a loving person, and he made his people number one to the point where he would take the profits and put them into accounts for the people. He paid them higher than all other grocery stores. Mm-hmm. They all had health care. They all had dental care. He paid for certain of his uh, managers when their managers were sending kids to college. He had funds to help support those who were in need. He cared not just about the human being, but that human being's family. And people loved him. Mm-hmm. And at yeah. one point, the board said, we don't want you, Arthur, because our profits are getting smaller. And all of the people, the you know, the people that are working for us, they've got all of their you know needs met. But we need to do something about increasing our profits. And they let him go. They kicked him off the board. The next thing we knew is all across Massachusetts in that New England area, all of the employees, none of them were in the union. They During their breaks, during their lunches, they were all picketing against the board to bring him back. They would chant. They wrote letters. Wow. All the neighbors that would come to these markets, they started to join the picket lines. They started writing letters to their senator. And this was the CEO. And this was this the was top The person. top guy. Right. The one you might okay. anticipate might be very separated from everyone else. And right. and the they ended up getting um, the local and state government officials involved and bringing Arthur back to running the organization. Mm-hmm. And they, the board had no choice but to bring him back. Bring him back. The people. That- and mm-hmm. when you think about it, not one of the stories that the employees told was about him issuing policies or standard operating procedures or writing a great vision statement or executing a strategic plan, you know, and meeting all of our goals. He was not about that. He was out there saying, you are the most important thing. I care about you. I want to know about you. I want to know about your wife and kids. One of his managers, our daughter was in a car accident and he went to visit and said, hey, if you need to have her moved to a different hospital, let me know he would personally have her moved because of his care for this person. And he wasn't related to these people. Such wonderful, kind gestures. I mean, just lovely human kind gestures. And that's what drove uh, people to follow him and be committed to him. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a saying, I I forget who said it, but you know, it's uh, I think it may have been the, uh, the poet and uh, civil rights activist, Angela. um, Oh, Maya Angelou. Yeah. Where she says uh, that it's it's how you feel. Right. It's uh, that feeling of a a good leader. How you know somebody is a good leader is based on on what you what you're feeling about that person. It has to do with emotions. We can't hide our emotions. And so in, in a good leader, they're going to elicit those kind of good feelings in you as an employee, as you know, as the follower. Uh, otherwise, what's the point? If if you don't have a good leader, you're not going to feel good about that person or yourself, right? So, and it goes back to that issue of psychological safety. So that that quote by Maya Angelou is is so wonderful, and you know, we we use that quote when we speak in at groups, and and when we say that, you know, it's it, people won't remember what you said or did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And, exactly. and when you hear that quote, you will hear you'll see audiences sometimes and. Half of them will be like, yeah, and then there'll be about thirty percent. They'll be like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. here we go, yeah. soft skills again. <laughs> you know, but 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 it, what's so it's so bad that that that's not being recognized because that's what fuels creativity. That's what fuels innovation. Because when you feel safe and you feel cared for, you're much more likely to think risk or take risks, think outside the box, 
and and that's really what I think Arthur did. And I, that I love that quote by Maya Angelou. It's true. Yeah, yeah. And I also like that we're now not calling it anymore uh, soft skills anymore. We're relabeling that essential skills, and that soft is now the new hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's definitely the hardest thing. I mean, it's, it, you know, we all have a cognitive capacity and we, you know, we, we really, this was almost one of the premises of the book is that we all have a cognitive capacity to accomplish a certain level of expertise in a field. So we may be an analyst or an economist or a nurse or whatever we happen to be. And that's fine, but that doesn't make us leaders. And, and, and the fact that I have the cognitive ability to master that bit of knowledge and the fact that you have it to master that bit of knowledge is, is delightful. But where do we connect? And that's yeah. where the essential skills come in. And that's why they're so crucial. Exactly. And I think, and I think one of the things that I, I really feel strongly is so many people that are climbing up in organizations they go to classes, they get certifications, they learn uh, models, they apply theories. Um, it's almost like they're walking around with a little checklist in their head. You know, did I say good morning to everyone today? Check. Did I send a thank you email to those who contributed to that team? Check. And everything is done through the lens of did I do this the, according to the way I learned it? And what we're saying is those theories and everything, they're great. There are some amazing models out there, you know, uh, checklists that everyone should be looking at. But what we're seeing is step back from that mm. and first tune into, does it matter? Does it matter to you? Because if it doesn't matter to you and you don't care, that's what the message is going to be. That's what that other person is going to feel. Mm. You know, yep. tap into why this matters to you. And you can't fake it. And you can't you fake, cannot it. fake it. No, yeah. That does not work. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, I'm going to come back to the topic of love, but I, I don't want to ignore the other half of your book. You already touched on it a little bit at the beginning. That's the leading with laughter part. So after a quick break, I want you guys to give us some context and explain what do you mean by leading with laughter? Be right back. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love in action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out. I'm taking calls right now. And I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on virtual training. Okay, guys, I have a series of questions related to laughing at work because it sounds kind of funny, no pun intended, <laughs> but, <laughs> but first of all, what do you guys mean by leading with laughter? Well, I think the first thing we have to say is to never trust stairs because they're always up to something. I, I had to do it. I had to do it. I'm sorry. Oh this, is, this is the part of the interview where Zena gets very nervous. Can you just get new material and then, <laughs> and then I could at least genuinely laugh? <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, this just like the word love, you know, people shy away from laughing at work because they're afraid they're not going to be taken seriously. They're afraid that everyone thinks that nothing's important anymore, that, oh, just do what you have to do. You know, nobody's serious about their work accomplishments, about their performance. And it's quite the opposite. You know, think about the, the times that you have had fun, the creativity from that, the, the stress reduction. We, we carry so much stress at work. And what we found is when people's stress levels go down and laughter will reduce your stress level, your performance goes up. Um, mm -hmm. Your ability to concentrate goes up. Your ability to think clearly goes up. Mm -hmm. um, your ability to, again, be creative, mm -hmm. you know, it goes up. That stress that we carry prevents us from being our best. 
Yeah, yeah, a lot of really complicated things happen in the brain whenever we laugh. There's this, you have to actually get the joke first. So it's, there's a lot of cognitive processes that happen that allow you to get the joke. And then there's this symphony of, of reaction that could manifest itself in 15, I think there's 15 distinct types of laughter. And so the the the, the physiological response is remarkable. And, and what with laughter, it was kind of the same as it was with love in that, you know, laughter in the workplace, people think, okay, I'm going to be a joke teller. And that really yeah. isn't what it is. It's not that at all. It's, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's actually much more authentic and real than that. Uh, but once we're able to create environments where people feel free to laugh and where they feel free to, to uh, enjoy each other's company, there's, there's joy and joy equals engagement and engagement equals commitment and commitment equals productivity and productivity right. equals mission accomplishment. It's just a beautiful, and, and, you know, one of the arguments that we've heard before about laughter is, well, you know, you know, I run a tight ship and this is a serious workplace. You know, I, I worked my way through college as a surgical tech and a surgical tech is the person that passes instruments during operations. And so I scrubbed as a young man from about age 19 to 23 or 24 on everything, open hearts, craniotomies, kidney transplant, everything. And I did it full time. There's not a funnier place in the world than an operating room. Once you're asleep, it's hilarious. And so <laughs> if we can laugh when I've got a spleen in one hand, right, and a, and a hemostat in another, and we can laugh so hard that I've got to look over for the nurse to come pat my forehead because I'm sweating. I mean, this is if, if we can do it there, we can do it anywhere. And of course, it's got to be timely and professional and appropriate humor. We're not advocating for anything other than that. Wait, what hospital? So that I don't go. There. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to know okay. what hospital that was at. You had a good time. Oh, so funny, <laughs> I did work for a hospital for a while uh, on, you know, on the administrative side. And it's funny, you know, we, we had to kind of check our joy at the door, our feelings at the door, because, uh, uh, you know, fun and, and laughter was just not indicative of that, of that culture. Right. I mean, it's like everybody walked around in suits and ties and I don't have anything against that. If, if that's your, you know, your, your dress policy, but it was, it was sort of the, the culture. It, yeah. it sort of impeded you from having fun, you know? And, uh, and, and I, you know, you walked around the halls, I could see it in people's faces that they were not having fun. It was, it was just punching in, punching out and, and, you know, putting up with whatever, <laughs> whatever's coming down the pipe from your boss. So, I mean, does it work for every organization or, uh, you know, I mean, can you get around like those very, I don't know, I, I guess I would say the, the not so fun uh, industries and, and I may be labeling, I may be wrong. So here's my assumption, right? Engineering, finance, maybe IT, I don't know. Sometimes they are so, there's so much pressure and, 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 uh, and it's usually male dominated as well. I don't know, but what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, I'm worried that someone from our IT office, our, our help desk may be listening to this right now. So when we call later today and our computer's broken, they're like, hey, you're making fun of IT folks. No, I, I think I'm surprised our, our call hasn't even been disconnected yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Marcel, when you were when you were listing those industries, the one that popped into my mind where people might say, hey, that's no place for laughter would be law enforcement. But oh. the fact is that that, that law enforcement officers who are uh, who are congenial, who are nice, who are approachable, who can have a sense of, who humor. Have a sense of humor. I mean, they're they're almost social workers in reality. When when they can relate with others in that way, uh, they are the ones that are that people are drawn to. They're the ones that people want to connect with. They're the ones that people want to go to if they're sensing that there's trouble. And if law enforcement uh, folks can do that, then I, I think that that we can do it in pretty much any field. I, I can't imagine that there would be an industry that that it wouldn't work in as long as people were authentic and real and didn't try to you know become stand up comedians. And one of the things <laughs> that I, I think is important is for us to understand our own sense of humor. Again, just as in love, you know, really connecting with what you know what makes me laugh. What what makes me laugh about some of the things I've experienced. You know, using that self deprecating, that kind of like humility, but it's you're, you're making fun of yourself. You can laugh yeah. at yourself and when you can laugh at yourself and then share that as a leader, all of a sudden you have now 
put yourself right there with all the others in your organization. You are no longer the, the untouchable, you know, right. the, the person that's at the top of the empire that's just looking down on everyone. You've now become one of them. And the more that you can share of yourself, that connect that connection it gets stronger. People start to laugh more often around you, with you. They start sharing their funny stories around each other. You know, the team starts to gel more. You have way better teamwork um, when people can laugh with each other and and share their own personal, you know, funny stories. And it improves your physical health. I mean, we, we didn't talk about this with love, but both of these, uh, but laughter, especially because of the physiological response, the actual laughter, there, there was some research that was done that talked about 10 minutes of laughter or five minutes of laughter burned about 90 calories. And so the goal, our, our, our thought was, well, in that case, you could eat a piece of chocolate it's about 90 calories and then laugh, laugh for, for five, five minutes and eat chocolate <laughs> and laugh, eat chocolate and laugh. But, but it, 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 the, the advantage from a physiological standpoint is huge, but neurologically and emotionally, it makes us happier and healthier. It connects us. The anthropologists called this non serious social incongruity is what initial mm-hmm. laughter was uh, back in the cave days. And, and it was a bantering that occurred when people felt safe and when they were literally when their stomachs mm-hmm. were full and they were warm and they felt safe and they would laugh and they would make these gruntle noises together. And this is what I think it brings people together. I mean, it really levels the playing field too. When you, when you've got a senior executive in an organization who's willing to just be a little bit just exert a little humility, maybe just a little bit of humor, maybe make fun of themselves just a little bit. It brings them to the approachable stage for everybody else. And people think, wow, that person is just like me. That is so funny that they're able to do that. I mean, look at who's the guy that retired, uh, uh, Peyton Manning. So Peyton Manning, he's great at this. If you've ever seen him on Saturday Night Live or in his commercials, he makes oh, yeah. fun of himself all the time. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, and you look, and that makes him likable. It and makes him so likable and approachable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you, I think you hit the nail on the on the head uh, on the approachable part, because I've been part of work environments where, you know, you're in a meeting waiting for the boss to show up and everybody's just kind of laughing it up, cracking jokes. And then the boss walks in and all of a sudden it's like yeah. the air gets sucked out of the room. Right. Right. It's horrible. <laughs> It's yeah, horrible. that's right. And, and yeah. you know, we ask we ask the people that we work with. We say, listen, are you? If you walk into the room and everyone stops talking, yeah, there's a problem. <laughs> <I> wonder, <laughs> what, mm. you know, what did you do, or right. what, what's your presence saying? You know. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I just want to I want to raise the self awareness of people around this topic. Okay. So and, and get into the why here because this is really important for me. So if you're listening right now. And um, and, you know, okay, laughter and fun is missing in my workplace. What would you say is the reason? What's the why? I would probably say because the leader is not comfortable with themselves yet, that they're either there's a reason that they've got some kind of self-perception that they have to be a certain way. And that, that the very first step for every leader is to think about do some self-assessing, you know, yeah. What am I holding back of myself? You know, why am I protecting myself? Why am I afraid to make fun of myself? Why am I afraid to show that, you know, I'm a human being as well? You know, what is it that makes me want to stay up here and not not come down to being with all of my employees? And, and I would say that it's probably related to some sort of artificial construct about what may, what someone must do to play that role right. or to fulfill that need of this organization. And, you know, we, we look at organizations as these boxes that are all connected by lines. And in reality, they're just a whole bunch of human beings all thrown together under one kind of umbrella. And, and when we start kind of artificially identifying ourselves as the analyst or that person or that title, and we think of, of our organizations as something other than just collections of human beings, it makes it easy to make it sterile. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that makes it difficult as well. So I would suggest that would be going on as well. Yeah. And it's funny that the boss is, there are so many archetypes for what a boss is or how a boss should act. And that sometimes we carry that from our, from previous uh, workplaces, we, you know, from workplace to workplace to workplace. And we just have these ideas and they're the wrong ideas about um, how do I b- behave as a boss? And, uh, and so, you know, we carry that with us and end up being the kind of person that sucks the air out of the room, not knowing. And it's, you know, it could be a blind spot that uh, those are the examples that, that that they learned from previous bosses and they're not aware 
of uh, what you know people truly need right now to engage, to connect, to feel like they belong, et cetera. Well, those so. previous experiences really stay with us a lot. And, and, and from, from the brain standpoint, when, we, when we've grown up seeing things in a certain way or viewing things in a certain way, it's hard to break out of that. And it goes back to the self-awareness. It takes a lot of really deep work to break away from that and create new pathways of thinking right. and, and expanding the mind's capacity to be able to be comfortable with and see these things. But when we do, it, it makes a huge difference. And, yeah. yeah. And, and, through neuroplasticity, we know that our brains can change the way we think at any age. So that is definitely doable. Why did you look at me when you said at any age? Because <laughs> um, I know how old you are. Oh, so. <laughs> she went like there's still any hope. Age. There's still hope, I'm trying to say. <laughs> right. There's still hope. Well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, you guys are fun. I, I want to get back to um, just go. Let's go back to to love and wrap up the love part. Leading with love. Okay. So uh, speak from a culture standpoint, right? How do we cultivate a loving organization? You have several ways that you mentioned in the book. I think I would start again with the self. Every leader, team leader, manager, um, it doesn't department head, a CEO should be starting with themselves and asking themselves that question. Am I comfortable with myself? Do I love myself? When I come into the office, do I have fun Mm -hmm. or am I walking around exuding this persona that I think I need to be in order to be that large and in charge person. Yeah. And I think part of that is making time in the workplace for one-on-one conversations. I mean, nobody, no one will ever say they have enough time. Nobody ever has enough time. So we can't say, well, I I don't have enough time. Well, you're never going to have enough time. So make the time, figure out a way to be able to stop at somebody's cubicle, poke your head in their office chat with them a little bit, notice, just take the simple act of noticing something on their wall or their desk that may be personal or meaningful to them and ask them about it. And truly uh, just, just, just a little, just a little time to just have a conversation. Those are the very small and priceless and inexpensive because they're free gestures that really start to fuel. And it's those little one-on-one interactions. You know, as Zena said, once you've kind of gotten a sense of where you are with the topic and what it means to you, Figure out ways to have those conversations with people and don't make it about work. You have plenty of time to talk about work. I mean, coming off of COVID, one of the things that we're seeing with with people going back to physical workplaces where they're doing that is that leaders are not making enough time for people to share their experiences about what has happened to them and their friends and families in the last couple of years. It's like, okay, let's get back to work. Well, Number one, they never stopped working. They've always been working. So we're not going back to work, but we're going to a place now where we're all back together. Let's not just see each other and say hello, but let's share with one another. And I think that's what builds that social fabric. Mm. So basically what you're saying is, is that you start with self and you lead by example, and then you make it safe for others to do the same, to, to display those gestures. And, uh, and then that shapes the culture because you know, when people feel, this, feel safe, uh, the example kind of travels and it spreads outwardly to other people. Is that what you're saying? And I think that there's a there's a need for us to institutionalize this as well. I think, you know, we can we can go back to our workplaces and say, OK, we're going to try to create a loving workplace. But you know what? Take a look at mission statements. Take a look at company values. Are the words love written in those documents? When we interview people for positions, we should be asking them about to share examples. Don't ask them if they think that empathy is important. Everybody says that. Right. Have them give an example of when they were empathetic in the workplace and watch them struggle with that one. I yeah. mean, th- these are things that formally I think we can put in place where we not only talk about it among ourselves, behave, but it's out there for the world to see as well. I mean, Southwest Airlines does this really well, of course, right. but and a lot of other organizations do too. Sure. So- yeah. Okay. Zena, you may have already answered this, but I, I want to make sure that I'm not leaving any stones unturned here. So I want you to speak to the CEO. And this is going to be my my last question before we wind down to our close here. So speak to the CEO. We got a lot of CEO listeners now. And so if I'm buying into these ideas that, you know, of love and, and, and these gestures and these these touch points during the day, checking in with people, see how they're doing and et cetera, you know, making the, the workplace more fun bringing laughter into the workplace because we know that it's going to create impact and in high performance and and business results is what what we're after okay but if i'm listening now and and perhaps my my organization there you know there's some toxicity and the culture is dysfunctional 
what is a good first step that I would need to take as a CEO to put love into action? I mean, the, the very first step would be to remove all of the barriers that you have put on yourself, like your title, like the size of your office, like the amount of money that you're making, like how you know professional you appear. Take all of that off and start with the core self. What does it feel like to be loved? What does it feel like to love somebody else? And once you once you start asking yourself, you know, why am I carrying around all of this protection? That protection is what's keeping the distance between you and every other human being around you at every level of your organization. So that would be the very first step. Yeah, yeah. You 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 sound a lot like Brene Brown when you said that, you know, having that layer of protection that keeps us from being vulnerable. Um, Patrick, do you have any thoughts on that on, on your end about what would be the first step to the CEO? You know, I, I agree with everything Zena said, because I know better than not to, I, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think, I think what I would, I, what I would add to that is, is, is then, you know, take that next step that makes you uncomfortable, um, you know, stop and talk to someone that you've not talked to before and recognize, recognize that. People know the role you play. You know, the, the, the CEOs, especially of large organizations, they're they're almost mystical figures and they're scary figures. People know that about you. You don't need to do that anymore. They get that part, but they might, they do, they definitely do just want to know you. We were working with an organization a number of years ago where, where the, the CEO was a very autocratic, you know, toxic, mean guy and just, just uh, nasty. Everyone was afraid of him. And his chief learning officer went to him and said, sir, people need to get to know you. He said, why can't they just be doing their jobs? He's like, I've got yeah. too much to do to run this organization. And then she said, no, no, you need to tell your story. So they called an, an open forum in all hands. Everyone got together and this CEO stepped up in front of a group and told, and just told his story. And his story was an amazing story. He was an immigrant from Vietnam, uh, came across the Pacific, lost family members in route, just this horrendous story of, of survival and, and and not a dry eye in the house by the time he finished just sharing that story. Well, guess what happened? People knew him at that point. Yeah. And I think that's where we sometimes will falter is that we don't let people get to know us because we're afraid it might lessen our authority or might lessen our, our role as the leader of the organization. In fact, it enhances it. So yeah. I would start with what Zena said, and then I would take that next step. I love it. I love it. Two words that come to mind when I hear you guys explain that is uh, uh, two essential words uh, for you to lead that way. One is humility and two is authenticity, humility and authenticity. But again, they're very warm and fuzzy words, aren't they? Because we still haven't reached that point where we recognize these as true leadership strengths. Yeah, yeah. and in that authenticity, I and mean, people use that word so often, and I don't know if people really practice um, being authentic. Mm -hmm. we think, you know, we think we're authentic, but we all go into what we call automatic mode. You know, you've got so much to do, so many deadlines, so many tasks, so many phone calls, meetings, and we go into automatic mode. And one of the things that, you know, Patrick and I talk a lot about is, you know, are you being present in the moment when you're with somebody or are you just doing what you think you're supposed to be doing with that person. And if mm. you're present, are you curious? You know, are you asking questions and digging deeper and trying to get to know this person beyond that first layer of, oh, how are things going? Or how are the kids? And that's it, you know, like mm. I've done my job. And so that when you think about being authentic, I, I also say, start becoming more curious about yourself. I, mm. You know, it's not just about the other people. You've got to work on yourself. We, we often say, you know, get certified in self first and then go get certified in everything else. Because if, if you can't get in touch and in tune with who you truly are as a person, you know, what is your personality or, you know, removed all those layers that you've put on top of you uh, to protect yourself from everybody else. Um, that authentic self won't come out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gang, as we wind down here, and this has been such a rich conversation, I'm going to play it back all, all week long. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what as authors of this great book that you guys co-wrote, what do you hope readers will take away from this book? Um, I think my, my message is 
it's never too late to start. The journey is never ending because we're always, always changing and growing. And so keep that in mind. And the, and I, I get my one more word. Don't go in there yet. And be forgive yourself for mistakes. Forgive yourself if you don't nail it right away. Forgive yourself if you fall back into that automatic self. But practice, just practice. I'm so glad she didn't take mine. I was listening to her and she's about to add something else. I'm thinking she's going to say what I want to say. So you did it. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. (laughs) I would say just try. Just try. I mean, one of the one of the the messages that we really wanted to get out with the book was we're we're as Zena said, we're all on that journey. And so why not just just take a risk, just take a little risk and do a little self-effacing humor. I mean, just one little minor comment and see how it works. And and maybe have that one conversation with the person that you've never really talked to, but you know that they're the budget person down the hall. I mean, just just try. That's all we're asking because once this happens and and you feel that emotional safety and that warmth and that and the love and and the joy that that results from this it's addicting and yeah. it's also it's also something that that will just take off in an organization very very quickly mm. well we bring it home with two final questions here they are personally what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know and ladies first oh gosh you had to make me go first. I'm like, I went first last time. <laughs> um, what's tugging at my heart? The urgency with which I think we all need to love each other more. Mm. Patrick. I think the divisiveness in our nation right now, it, it it's I hate to sound like the old guy because you know you get that that reputation, but I don't recall a time in my life or even in looking back in history where, where we were a nation that was so polarized yeah. and so politicized. And, and I, I think what really, and we talk about this a lot, and it is, it's like what people have just gone crazy on, on all sides. They've all gone crazy. Yeah. Let's, let's reconnect. And so I think that's probably what's really tugging at me. Love it. Guys, you get to bring us home. It's uh, it's it's basically it's my show, but I give you the floor to close us with whatever remark. If you have a key takeaway, an insight, or a mic drop moment, floor is yours. You're the best mic dropper in the family. You should do this one. <laughs> oh gosh, I, I'm just, maybe what I'll say is it's time to self certify. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I'm going to just agree with her. I think that's it. I, I think it's. I think we should try to trust ourselves a little more. Just trust ourselves a little more. We don't. We don't need people telling us what to do. Let's just let's listen to our own bodies, our own souls, our own hearts, and 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 let's get in touch with that. And if we can do that, we'll we'll make it a much more open and inclusive and welcoming world. I that's awesome. All right, I want to send. Oh, is that too big for a mic drop? That's a big that's thing a long for a mic drop. <laughs> right? Sorry about that's, that, Marcel. That's I, a mic toss across the room. I know she's kneeing me in the thigh here, like my like, drop moment. You need to do it. Calling. Okay, Elvis has left the building. All right. Well, the book again is called "Leading with Love and Laughter." Hey, if people want to connect with you or learn more about you, where can they? go what, what is it suchmalone.com is the website and our emails are there as well it's zena and patrick at suchmalone.com i had a blast i hope you guys did too we did, we did. yeah thank you marcel it was great <laughs> good good join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag love in action podcast and look for my show notes from this episode on my website marcelschwantes.com i'll be sure to include their information there and the the website for you to go on. And finally, we're always looking for sponsors to help us spread the love and action movement globally. If you have an interest, reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Love and Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.